Welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Today, we'll be listening to Buddhist author and feminist Sandy Boucher chat with longtime Zen teacher Joan Halifax about her latest book, Standing at the Edge. Joan Halifax, or Roshi Joan as she's known to her many students, is the founder of the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She is also an anthropologist, humanitarian, and seasoned social activist. In Standing at the Edge, Roshi Joan explains how five psychological states, altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement, can help us serve others more effectively when we learn to navigate the pitfalls of each state with care. Her book is a guide to working for the freedom of others and ourselves, remaining engaged in the world without burning out, and committing to sustainable moral action. Now, let's listen to Sandy Boucher and Roshi Joan Halifax. I'm delighted to be here with Roshi Joan Halifax, speaking about your new book, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet. And this, for me, is a tremendously relevant book, because, you know, in these tumultuous times, we we experience ourselves often at the edge, what I would call the edge. And I find myself looking for help, looking for help in navigating the demands of all this, of living, trying to live a life of integrity and being of use in the world. So I was eager to read Standing at the Edge because I was hoping for a guide, a wise, deeply experienced and compassionate voice. And I heard it in this book. I was moved by your stories, Rosie Joan, by your integration of scientific findings with experience, by the development of your understanding of our possibilities in these difficult times. You've given us a way to study our inner ecology, as you call it, and drawn a map, exciting, dangerous territory, a map of the risk and possibility that we traverse every day and that leads us to transformation. Most of us want to be good people. We want to meet our challenges with an open mind and a warm heart. But how do we do that? You ask, Roshi, how can we stand on the threshold between suffering and freedom and stay involved by both worlds? That threshold is the edge. So I would like to ask you to please tell us what you mean by the edge. And maybe we can begin to talk about the five edge states that you've identified, which are altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, engagement, and the role of compassion in navigating these states. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Sandy. I deeply appreciate you taking the time to not only read the book, but also to bring it into your life and to explore what it might be for you as an individual, but also how it can serve our current situation. As you say, we live in fraught times. So I've always been interested in edges. Edges are uh, those kind of boundary conditions where ecologies overlap and where there's greater diversity, in fact, greater potential for life and also for suffering. I think the, the Buddha, in a way, pointed toward edge states when he articulated the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, and then in the 
Number three, uh, liberation from suffering or freedom. And needless to say, Buddhism has influenced uh, my perspective on uh, the value of exploring not just the territory of virtue, but also understanding um, the territory of suffering. And um, that edge between these worlds, which are interconnected worlds, is something that I've found uh, very important at this time in my life and at this time in the world. It's not just to stand within the strength of our virtue, but to have understanding, insight, and even experience of what it is to fail, what it is to suffer. And this is such a strong dimension of the book, is talking about how as we're walking that edge, we can fall over to one side or another and find ourselves in a very difficult place. Exactly. And the premise in the book is that the way to transform the suffering in any of these edge states is through the medium of compassion. Part of my work has been to revision compassion, to discover aspects of compassion which are not well understood in our everyday culture, and to revalue compassion. Because I look at compassion, if you will, as the the lever or the medium of transformation of each of the fraught sides of the edge states. You write in the book, we discover that compassion is the great vehicle that delivers us from suffering and gives us power, balance, and ultimately freedom, no matter what we have faced. Exactly. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, let's take an example um, on the section on altruism. Mm-hmm. As you point out, this impulse we have to act it for others' benefit, impulse to self-sacrifice, can actually sometimes cause harm. Yes. And how difficult it is to know how to navigate that edge and not fall over into causing harmful consequences. And this you call pathological altruism. It's yeah. not my term, though, I want to. It is, it is not. No, it's uh, Barbara Oakley's term. Mm-hmm. Barbara Oakley called it yeah. pathological altruism. And one fascinating example for me that you mentioned is the Vietnamese monks and nuns who immolated themselves in yeah. protests against the Vietnam War. And, of course, these were acts of great heroism, but they were also acts of violence, which could be experienced as harmful. So I wonder if you can talk a bit more about pathological altruism and the way that it can manifest, and how we can move away from it, perhaps. You know, it's a fascinating question, Sandy, that you're asking, because it manifests in relation to how we see an action. So mm. in the case, for example, of Sister Mai or of Tikwan Duk, there's a whole sector of individuals who look at um, his act and her act of immolation as a violation of the mm. precept of harming and non-harming. And um, there's another sector of the population who regard the act of self-immolation as uh, an act that transformed um, our, uh, in the West, attitude toward the war in Vietnam. So 
I conclude, you know, at the end of uh, recounting Thich Quang Duc's story of the immolation, and I actually heard it from David Halberstam uh, in the 1960s when he was in the apartment of Alan Lomax talking about the shock he experienced in seeing this monk uh, immolate himself. And Was um, he actually there? Or did he, he was there. Oh. And he was one of the few journalists who was present. Malcolm Brown, of course, was. He photographed Tikwanduk in the uh, act of emulation. But it haunted Halberstam, and it's haunted many people. And yet that act uh, transformed at least my life when I saw Malcolm Brown's photograph and read the story of the emulation. It turned me into an activist. Oh. And so um, that's why I tell the story. You know, it's not to say my activism was significant, but it turned me into an anti-war activist because I wanted to understand what this war was about. Why would someone sacrifice himself in this way to bring attention to a war that um, not only was unjust, but also was uh, really against the precept of uh, harm? And non-harming. And so pathological altruism can refer to, but in a sort of less extreme way, to the psychological or physical harm we do to ourselves when we're engaged in serving another. It can also refer to actually uh, harming the people whom we're serving, for example, disempowering Which them. Which is not so uncommon, is and it? And no. actually, it's very common. Yes. It can also harm the institutions that we're serving in or the institutions right. or the nations that we're trying to serve, like what happened in Haiti and what happens in, often in uh, Nepal. And so it's a powerful process within us um, that is important for us to recognize and to nurture the healthy side of altruism, but also to understand we often slip over the edge um, for reasons of ego, of wanting to be known as a good person, of psychosocial and gender pressures. For example, women tend to be more pathologically altruistic mm -hmm. than men, or religious pressures or social pressures that um, end up uh, creating harm for us or others. And, you know, I've worked in the end-of-life care field for many decades, and listening to caregivers physicians, nurses, chaplains, social workers, family members um, speak about their experience of caring for a dying loved one where they actually are engaging in behaviors which are self-harmful and in some cases harmful to those whom they're endeavoring to serve mm -hmm. and the suffering that they experience from falling over the edge of altruism into pathological altruism. Well, and one of the things that I liked very much about the book also was that you had some practical suggestions for working on these edge states to counteract tendencies like that. And um, for instance, setting boundaries, looking at our biases, being part of a community. Can you talk a bit about how you came to your understandings of these measures? Because I know you have been very engaged with many groups and institutions as, as a creator, a founder, participant over the years. Well, being all of that is one thing, but also 
having fallen over the edge of altruism <laughs> myself is, I think, what's really the critical thing here. <laughs> it's not just me listening to other people. It's knowing pathological altruism from inside the experience myself. Yeah. That um, I have experienced stress, exhaustion, um, I've overworked uh, my own life in certain ways, and endeavor to serve others, but it actually has been a kind of challenge that I, as a woman, a Western person, a person of a certain generation, I'm familiar with personally. And um, I felt very... Uh, grateful when I read Oakley's work because I realized, oh, this is uh, what I'm doing. And uh -huh. boundaries are important. Grounding is important. Distinguishing between self and other is important. Having a community of support who have the nerve and the insight to give you feedback, hey, Roshi, slow down, stop, take a rest. It's essential. Uh -huh. And um I, I will confess to you, Sandy, there's not one edge state that I uh, write about, <laughs> which I haven't known the fraught side of. <laughs> well, and a related one, of course, to this is empathy. And there are many, many powerful stories in this book, but one I, I particularly found most resonant was that of Dolma. Mm. You were serving at the Nomads Clinic in the Himalayas. And the father brought his little girl who had been terribly, terribly burned. And her wounds hadn't been tended to. They were putrid. They even were maggot-infested. I can't even imagine. And, and there was no pediatric painkiller right. for this child. And they were about, is the word debride? They were about to clean her. Clean the wounds. Birth. Right. So as the doctors cleaned her wounds, naturally she cried heartbrokenly, I'm sure. And you, hearing her cries, felt her pain, but to such an extent that you were close to passing out and becoming completely useless in the situation. And, and a major distraction And a major well. distraction, <laughs> lying on the floor, yes. Yeah. So can you tell us how you made your way from this, I would say, awful mental state back into the room to be there and support the doctors who were saving this child's life? You know, I I can recall the experience quite vividly um, uh, because it was somatic. I could feel my blood pressure dropping. I'd broken out into a cold sweat. I felt as though I were about to throw up, um, lose consciousness. And I had this kind of like uh, thought bubble, which was, oh, that's not a good thing to do. <laughs> this is not what I'm here to do. And so um, I reallocated my attention. I actually pulled it off the little girl, and I put it into this experience of sensing my feet on the floor, which is a completely neutral focus. But um, the result was that I began to get grounded, and um, getting grounded, I could feel my blood pressure shift. And I will tell you, Sandy, um, being able to do this really has come out of my experience as a meditation practitioner. I was just about to ask you that. Yeah. Is this a product of meditation? Absolutely. And that grounding in the body, too. Exactly. Which you return to over and over. And you, you talk about counteracting these, these states 
And you always say, and you've got to come back to the body. Exactly. Which is a core Buddhist principle. The first foundation of mindfulness yes. is mindfulness of the body. Yeah. And I explored this theme in uh, a more extensive way as the book progresses. Mm-hmm. But in, you know, in this instance, uh, Sandy, I, it, it was um, because uh, really the true Buddhist practice, so often in meditation, I will sit on my cushion, and the first thing that I do, even before cultivating bodhicitta, is I'm aware of my bodily state. Mm-hmm. I'm sensing into my heart, my lungs, my gut, the sensation of my feet on the floor if I'm in a chair, or my sits bones on the cushion. I'm grounding, but I'm also seeing the biases that the body are reflecting. And, um, and what do you mean by that? That is that the body knows before the conceptual mind does. Like, for example, if I'm standing with a parent who's just lost a child and who is enraged, they feel completely helpless, but they're yelling at me, I could feel threat. Yes. And uh, I could shut down completely. That experience of threat and a physical shutting down is like a mindfulness bell. And it's really, oh, look what's happening. My threat detector is completely alive. I'm shutting down, but actually this has not got anything to do with me. This is a person who's really suffering and feels completely helpless and brokenhearted who's standing before me now yelling at me. And so having this capacity to actually turn attention to the body not only allows us to get grounded, but it also, um, the body is this processing machine with just all this information that is coming through the somatic medium that is telling us, I feel threatened, or I feel attracted, or I feel aversion, or I feel relaxed, I feel safe, um, I feel, uh, you know, my racist tendencies are being activated in this moment. I see, oh, my gut is tensing up and I'm throwing up a big wall between me and this other person, and so on and so forth. So this is a very powerful way that um, uh, we can actually scan our physical subjectivity uh, in order to have a deeper read on what is going on in the Mm -hmm. present moment. Mm -hmm. But in the case of this young child... Very fascinating sequence of things happened. One is I reallocated my attention. I rested in the sensation of my feet on the floor. As grounding happened, um, I also uh, let my heart and mind be more present. And with my blood pressure going up, thank you, normalizing, I also had this uh, recall of why we were there, which was we were there to really serve to end the suffering of people. And then I thought about the child's father who happened to have been a mute and was uh, a very uh, vulnerable, somewhat older man and, you know, wearing tatters. And I'd learned uh, through uh, an associate that he'd walked two days carrying this little girl in this sort of rancid nest, holding it in his arms And I felt this gratitude welling inside of me in relation to his father bringing the little girl into the clinic and this Uh kind of sense of admiration. And then, you know, what unfolded from that was me uh, sending metta 
loving kindness to the nurses and the doctors who were working on the child, to the father. And, and again, it was all very spontaneous. But in retrospect, Sandy, um, I was exploring what my experience was. And it was, I realized, you know, this was um, a reflex that I had engaged in. It just happened, you know, right away as a save. But I also recognized the value of practice in terms yes. of conditioning me to but have I, a response. Right, which and was I hear the same. importance of of uh, being aware of the environment in which something is occurring. Exactly. What is the context? What What are my intentions here? What should be happening here? Yeah. And am I contributing to that or not? Precisely. So, it, so it's not about me and my responses. It's about the the context and the, the environment and the event itself. And I think this is a very important point because it's not just about our small subjectivity. It's about intersubjectivity. It's yeah. about inaction, to use a term from Francisco Varela. It's to understand that our environment is shaping our experience, but also our experience is shaping the environment. Right. And I was about to throw a curveball into the environment. Yes. <laughs> and, I'm so glad you didn't. <laughs> well, same here. Yeah. You've spoken about your social activism, your political activism, we could say, where the Vietnam War was concerned. and. And part of that um, involves integrity. And in, in the section on integrity, uh, you do tell a number of dramatic stories about in which people's personal values and ethical principles were put to the test. And what did they do in those situations? One of these individuals being the great uh, civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hamer. So you met her. This is in, probably in the 60s. 1964. Were, yeah, and you, we were in SNCC. You were in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And she was a major organizer. And, and you were powerfully impacted by Fannie Lou Hamer. And I, and you, you say that her, her lifelong struggle for justice took on a profound value for you as a guide in your own life. So what was it particularly about Fannie Lou Hamer's integrity? that touched you so indelibly? She was a woman who had a profound faith. She had faith not only as a Christian, but she also had faith in humanity. And she saw her social activism as a spiritual path. And that was, from my point of view, uh, a brilliant insight that she actualized through the medium of her own life because she brought faith and justice together in very much, from my point of view, uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh did. Mm -hmm. um, he brought faith and justice together, as uh, Dr. King did. And Dr. King spoke about faith and love, or love and justice, rather. And I think that um, what I realized with Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, Dr. King, and with Ty is the possibility of being a change agent in society as a spiritual path and the integration of uh, social action and contemplation. Uh, contemplation is, for me, it was as a, you know, a young Buddhist practitioner, um, where I had siloed meditation, um, as a kind of, you know, mind training, a philosophy, a psychology, 
but I realized it was actually a medium for uh, nourishing justice and love in society as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all three of those individuals uh, influenced me deeply, but the first person who exemplified the integration of faith and justice for me was Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. I think that bringing this together is has been a problematical thing for many of us who maybe started out as as political activists and only later came to the Dharma or to spiritual practice and how do we put that together. So I loved your t- talking about it in that way. And you know, I think another thing about Fannie Lou Hamer that in retrospect stands out for me, it was the absence of skepticism. She was so non-demoralized in spite oh. of being, you know, uh, subjected to abuse, violence, disparagement. She stood up again and again and again. Every time she was knocked down, she stood up again. And for me, she exemplified these principles that I speak about so often now of strong back, soft front. Mm -hmm. She had Mm -hmm. a back that um, had tremendous uh, power, strength, capacity to uphold herself in the midst of these complicated conditions that were all... all over the civil rights movement of the 60s. And she she never, as far as I ever heard about, stepped off the path of love and justice. And the capacity to, or the willingness to take the blows. She took the to blows. To take the abuse. And, this and was, move ahead. Let's yeah. go ahead. This is one of the things, you know, you don't have to seek suffering. Uh, <laughs> life will give you uh, right. your good doses. I've, I've noticed this. Right. <laughs> But um, she made more out of adversity than almost anyone that I've ever personally known. She was extraordinary in this regard. She made a life not only for herself, but really for all of us. We are the beneficiaries of her courage. You are listening to Tricycle Talks with Sandy Boucher and Roshi Joan Halifax. The latest issue of Tricycle the Buddhist Review is now at your local bookstore, In it, you'll discover how ancient Buddhist practices can dovetail with the modern-day Me Too movement, why awakening makes more sense when you do it for the sake of others, and a Tibetan guide to love and sex by an early 20th century Tibetan scholar and renegade monk. If you'd like immediate access, visit us at tricycle.org, where you'll find a wealth of Buddhist wisdom to live by, such as monthly feature films, e-books, and Dharma talks by well-known Buddhist teachers. Now, let's get back to Roshi Joan Halifax and Sandy Boucher's conversation. Well, if we're talking about the edge of integrity, you indicate that it's possible to fall off that edge in two directions. One being moral outrage, which isn't very useful because it can exacerbate differences and cause separation. On the other side is moral apathy, in which we sink away from conflict and avoid the reality of suffering, a kind of death of the heart, yeah. as you put it. And I'm well, sure James others. Baldwin actually was... Did he say a, that? And, you know, Sandy, um, I have actually four aspects where integrity begins to break down I, I, in this sort of area of moral suffering. But it was when I saw I'm Not Your Negro... And oh. I heard James Baldwin's talk about moral apathy. Yes. I just, you know, went back into and I said, that's it, moral apathy. And I 
did a whole section on moral apathy. Uh-huh. But there, uh-huh. there are f- actually four aspects that around moral suffering that I think are important for us to know about. And one is moral distress. And that's the distress that you and I might feel when we are uh, confronted with a situation of egregious harm and we see a way through, but we can't affect it. We can't actualize it. And so we feel this sense of brokenheartedness or deep, we're distressed. Well, I want want you to address the monkey in the laboratory. Oh, my goodness. That's a piercing, piercing example to me. You you were in a laboratory where a monkey was being used for an experiment. He he or she was strapped in into the machine, and, and you look at each other. Well, this was uh, shocking. I was actually with uh, Francisco Varela and Harry Wolf, who was um, uh, from Princeton. And we walked into a lab in Stanford, this basement lab where many different uh, rhesus monkeys were cuffed in these small cages. And Harry and I approached uh, one of those cages, and the top of the monkey's skull had been sawed off, and electrodes were directly implanted into the monkey's brain. And Harry sank to the ground. Yeah, you said. And I, I was struck dumb. I looked into the eyes of that monkey, and that monkey and I just locked eyes. And I, I mean, the suffering of this primate uh, changed my life. I could not fathom how a human being could do this to another creature. And so I experienced in that moment profound moral distress. And I also experienced moral injury, which is the second category that I describe, which was um, I was traumatized yes. by what I witnessed. And I, I said in the book that, you know, that monkey lives in me still. Mm-hmm. It's like a kind of recurring nightmare every time I see the abuse of any animal. That monkey will appear like a flashback. Mm-hmm. And of uh, how cruel we humans can be t- to each other. Yeah. So that that relates to moral injury, and moral injury, you know, Sandy is primarily associated with people in the military who um, witness or participate in acts that uh, cause harm. Right. You give some examples of that. Yeah. Um, it's it's all over the military. It's defined in the military. It's not identified as a syndrome like, you know, for example, burnout is. But I see moral uh, injury in medicine. I see it in law. I see it in politics and education. You know, I think every teacher in Parkland who was in the school where this uh, terrible shooting happened experience moral injury because they witnessed the effects of gun violence on their students and on themselves. And they, you know, now they're in the experience because moral injury can lead to moral outrage. A combination of anger and disgust in relation to um, what is perceived to be uh, uh, violations of integrity but moral injury is um, more related to the experience of self-blame, of feeling oh. ashamed. Oh, yes. And um, moral outrage is an outward expression of blaming and shaming others. And, you know, something, those kids in that school, Marjorie Douglas School, and this woman, she uh, was the, I think, the daughter of the founder of the Miami Herald, and she was a social activist her whole life. And these kids somehow picked up her spirit 
And they're experiencing moral outrage as the parents are who are standing in front of our politicians mm-hmm. asking for gun right. control. So I, my contention is episodic moral outrage can be very important in terms of fostering uh, social change. Chronic moral outrage is debilitating. Yes. Our good friend Rebecca Solnit, who wrote the introduction to the book, speaks about this in terms of recreational bitterness. It's a yes. kind of moral outrage yeah. where you just you know, simply pick apart the so-called opposition mm-hmm. in a kind of expression mm-hmm. of uh, horizontal hostility. Of course, a contemporary one we have is um, the, the government. So we get together and <laughs> engage in, in that with, yeah. about the government. Recreational bitterness. Yeah, Wonderful term that Rebecca coined. But you were going to make another point. Well, the the last piece has to do with moral apathy. And moral apathy can be conscious or unconscious. For example, um, you know, I recount the story of being raised in a racist community. I was – the community where I was raised, not only were Afro-American black people not allowed to reside in the community, they worked in the community as maids and gardeners, but um, people who were Jewish – couldn't live in my neighborhood. And it's kind of inconceivable now. These were called restricted communities. Where, where, what state was that? This was in Florida, Florida, Carl Gables, Florida. And so the people that I grew up with, the world that I lived in as a child was a world in a bubble of privilege. And that bubble of privilege protected me from the truth of suffering that was right across the tracks. It it has its own version of suffering, too. Yes, right. Privilege is also suffering. But how we contribute to the suffering of others is very important to understand. So there's that kind of moral apathy, which is basically psychosocially constructed. There's moral apathy when we turn away from the truth of suffering. When we engage in uh, actions, whether it's addiction, addictive behaviors, or whether it's abandoning or numbing ourselves out from the the suffering that we foster in beings in the world around us. So, you know, moral apathy, and James Baldwin just nailed it. Boy, I was sitting in that movie, and I heard James Baldwin use this expression, and I was like, oh, I have to write a section on moral apathy, because I understand it from my own experience of having been raised in a restricted community, but also as a white person of living, even though I'm a social activist like you, and we're, we have a sense of conscientious engagement and an imperative to transform the conditions of uh, discrimination that have prevailed in our world, it was like, oh, this is important to identify and call out. Yes. It was a stunning movie, wasn't he? So eloquent. And so honest. And so honest, You know, yes. when he was in that car driving through Birmingham and kind of, you know, sort of sliding down the back seat, realizing, you know, I actually chose to opt out of living in the middle of the suffering of racism by going to Europe. Mm-hmm. But he chose to come back. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Well, speaking of suffering and respect, I know that you as a um, little child had a, had a major health glitch. <laughs> And I believe you, you went actually went blind, did you not? For two years. For two years. 
So you were way behind the other students when you went back to school. And because you had been ill and and hadn't grown so much, I guess you were you were little and skinny, and they made fun of you, and they, they bullied you and, and teased you. And so out of that, you had this sense of respect and what, what disrespect is and the need for our respecting each other. But one of the um, the major places where disrespect and abuse is rampant is our prison system. Yeah. Our gigantic, that gigantic system of, of incarceration. And you've worked in prisons, and you've encountered this disrespect, this abuse. And you tell one story about a very verbally violent white supremacist skinhead, I guess he was, who uh, ranted at you in a, a very scary way and how you reacted to him. And then you, you tell the thoughts you had about this man later and about his situation and how you might have reacted differently. In this, I was particularly struck by your recognition the second time around that, as you put it, he had been stripped of his dignity. Can you talk a bit about your interactions with this man and, and what you learned there? Sandy, it was a very... Um, powerful experience for me to work as a volunteer in the prison system, um, sharing meditation with people on death row and maximum security. And we had a fairly consistent a group of men who came every week into the chapel, were brought into the chapel. And, um, you know, we did a council process with them, a check-in, and then um, uh, we would—I had a kind of curriculum. We went through various meditation practices— and one time, uh, I came into the room and sat down with some of the people I know, and then a prisoner was brought in, and he was kind of uh, enormous physically. And I'm not a particularly big person physically, and I looked at this guy, and it was like, hmm, this is uh, interesting. And he turned around to the guard as the guard was leaving the room, and I saw tattooed on the back of his shaved head was... Aryan Brotherhood. And I thought, wow. And he sat down and I began, you know, this kind of check-in process. And he just looked at me like I was an absolute idiot and said nothing. And then I began to lead meta practice, the may all beings be safe, peaceful, happy, and so forth. I wasn't one phrase in. And this guy jumped up. He must have been six foot four and started cursing and yelling at me. I will not uh, share the particular expletives (laughs) that came out of his mouth. But in any case, basically, he was saying, you don't know anything about what it's like to be in this kind of place. But he was saying it very violently. And out of the corner of my eye, saw the guard rush out of the glass guard box. He was going to have to actually go out into the yard and come into the door of the chapel. And um, to protect uh, you, to protect me, except, yes. you know, in the volunteer orientation, they said, if you're taken hostage, uh, you know, we're not responsible for saving you. And I said, oh, <laughs> yes. well, thanks a lot. That's a big incentive <laughs> for being here. But in any case, um, uh, I said uh, very spontaneously and, you know, without even thinking, I agree with what you're saying. I just don't like how you're saying it. The whole room, every guy in there just cracked up. They thought it was hilarious. And it downregulated the prisoner. 
And uh, the guard came bursting through the door expecting me to be taken hostage or harmed in some way. And um, everything was okay. A year later, I'm walking down the hallway. I'm going to enter a pod, and I see the same prisoner. I never saw him in the intervening time. I saw the same prisoner, and he was being uh, strip-searched. And um, I saw how the guards were handling him just as an object. And I had this moment where I realized, oh, my comment had actually humiliated him, had stripped him of his dignity further. And it was such a wake-up call. It's just, you know, it's like just a moment and um, that a woman was walking through the space where this man was being strip-searched um, was already a, a violation of his dignity. But then the way that he was being related to was just so abusive from my perspective. But that combined with the recall of the moment of cleverness on my part, which was actually um, humiliating for him. And I exited the spaces immediately, and I really had to sit with this a long time. What had been a save had actually been a harm. And see. that was um, that was kind of a wake up call for me. Yeah. Well, let's move on to engagement, which was one of your edge states. And of course, the goal is to be wholesomely engaged in our lives. And you you give us a an example of this with Jose, the Mexican mm-hmm. gardener, who's who goes methodically and peacefully about his tasks. You know, but for many of us in our work lives, we can sometimes wind up in burnout. And that is, I guess you would say, mentally and physically exhausted. This is something I didn't know that that term was invented in 1974 by a German-born psychologist named Herbert Freudenberger. And he said that it can involve the extinction of motivation or incentive, especially where one's devotion to a cause or relationship fails to produce the desired results. And of course, we've all experienced this, and it sounds pretty bleak. So I wonder if you want to talk about burnout a bit and the sort of relentless busyness that drives us there, that rules our lives at times and leads us to burnout. Yeah. So uh, Freudenberger, I think, was probably the first person who identified this. And then Christina Maslach further elaborated on the experience of burnout. And we actually have a whole sort of professional realm that has evolved around treating burnout people who are coaches and therapists and so forth. And what Maslach and Freudenberger talk about is the sense of lack of efficacy, that, you know, what we're doing is not making any kind of difference, that there's a lack of meaning, that potentially toxic work environment and so forth. Now, the opposite is also kind of fascinating to look at. It's people who work with enthusiasm and dedication. I think about... Uh, Mr. Lawrence Rockefeller, whom I knew into his 90s, who went to work every day, and he had a very nice privileged life, Buddha knows. But, you know, I think about other people that I've met who have less uh, access to resources, who stay dedicated and enthusiastic and are, quotes, hardworking and love it, feel totally fulfilled up until the time when their lives come to an end. But we have, in a certain way, become so identified with busyness. 
and the attention economy, which is and with productivity and too, productivity, don't you think? yes, quantity, not mm-hmm. necessarily quality, right. Um, uh, saying, you know, you ask, how are you today? I'm really busy. Which is supposed to be a good thing. Precisely. And um, I I kind of love the Zen uh, adage, you know, nowhere to go, nothing to do. (laughs) You know, how can we engage, as Brother David Stendhal-Ross talks about, in our lives wholeheartedly? Mm -hmm. And, And at the same time, not have the kind of ego investment in what we do that creates uh, fatigue and also takes us away from our hearts. Well, and you you offer some practices in the book itself. I'll just mention some of them are like work practice, meditating inside the life you have. That's a Clark Strand phrase, and I just love that phrase. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Right livelihood. Exactly. Choosing work that's aligned with our values. Precisely. And refusing work that isn't. Mm-hmm. Integrity is brought in. No work. No work. Take a pause. Waste time. Be aimless. And I, you know, I, I love that Thich Nhat Hanh, who has written, I don't know, 120 something books, <laughs> calls himself a lazy monk. That's right. Well, and then play. I bet he thinks of writing a book as play. Well, I wish I had felt writing this book was play, but anyway, it, it was work, but it did not take me to burn out. But actually play, exactly. And finally, you say connection. Connection is really important. Yeah, not just with others involved in a task, but with everything, with the universe. Well, connection, you know, with ourselves, connection with others, connection with context. And yes, connection is really essential This is, in a way, the spirit of mindfulness, Mm -hmm. you know, that we are not separate from what we're doing. And that's what some people say, oh, you know, mostly people are human doings. But um, this is really about human beings. Right, right. And you you end the book with a long chapter on compassion, which we spoke about earlier, the quality that can guide us in navigating these edge states. And I see this book ultimately as a call to action. You are asking us to step up, challenge injustice, challenge inequality, and in the process showing us how compassion can activate us and guide us. And on part of that quote I read before, we discover that compassion is the great vehicle that delivers us from suffering and gives us power, balance, and ultimately freedom. So that's that's a very stirring statement, I think. And I know there's an experience you tell about in the final section that illustrates, a, I would say, the deepest form of compassion, beginning when you fell in the bathroom mm. in, Toy- in Toronto. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, that story is um, was kind of hard to write, actually. You know, I was uh, in Toronto. I slipped on the bathroom floor, and um, I looked at the angle of my leg, and I realized I'd done something really bad. And uh, the host where I was staying, Andrew, came and supported my back as he called to his wife to dial 911. And so the ambulance arrived. I'm in excruciating pain. And the medics wanted to lift me onto a gurney. (laughs) And I was um, about to lose consciousness from such uh, excruciating pain. And I said, give me something to deal with this pain. 
And the medic said, well, I'm not licensed to do that. And I said, get someone who is before you move me. So about 10 minutes later, a person arrived, a man arrived who was licensed and um, uh, was able to administer morphine. By this time, I was going into shock and my veins were collapsed and he kept looking for a vein. He stuck me in one arm, the other arm, in my wrist, right wrist, then my left wrist, and he went into my foot, my right oh. foot, and my, by, you know, I had six uh, tries. I looked at the young medic who had originally arrived, and um, I could see he was very distressed. His eyes kind of rolled back into his head, and I had this kind of pulse of uh, loving kindness, you know, kind of like, oh, I hope he's okay. And at that thought, my uh, circulatory system opened up, and the needle went in, and uh, so did the morphine, and that was helpful. And so I was on the gurney, being taken down these stairs at a scary angle, in the ambulance, Friday the 13th, full moon, and uh, ambulance screaming. And I'm aware that the man who had given me the morphine is sitting next to me. I look at him, and he um, appears to be really distressed. And I put my hand on his knee, and I say to him, are you okay? And he said to me, my wife is dying of breast cancer. And I heard him. I, I mean, it was just this sense of incredible love and compassion that opened up in me. And at that moment, my pain completely disappeared. And when I went to Toronto Western Hospital, uh, he accompanied me and sat with me in the emergency room for hours and there was this bond between us that was really moved me, but it also took me out of my suffering. I was not the only being suffering. And Sandy, I look on this as an expression of a uh, manifestation of what's called non-referential or universal compassion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that, you know, suddenly... I was seeking someone to be compassionate about or for, also to relieve myself of pain. That compassion arose spontaneously, and it eclipsed my own suffering. And yet, you know, there was not a sense of self-consciousness about it. So in the book, I talk about these three phases of compassion, you know, referential compassion, where you feel compassion for another in your in-group uh, or someone who's, you know, like a co-combatant or your medical team um, or someone who's suffered like you. Also, compassion that's related to insight, where it really comes from the process of inquiry and understanding and can also relate to the precepts, compassion is a moral imperative. But this kind of universal compassion really is born of practice, where the sense of self and other um, is not present, and we just um, spontaneously respond to the suffering of the world. We're at the ready, and certainly in that situation, you have no idea what that man was holding. But that question was the right question in that moment. And it liberated both of us. Ah, oh, thank you. This may be a good place to bring our conversation to an end. I thank you so much, Roshi Joan, for speaking with us today. And I, I wonder, is there one last thing you might want to say? 
to those who are listening, to those who are reading the book? Is there anything else, or have we said it all here? There's a, a quote that I share, epigraph for one of the chapters, which goes something like, may I do a great deal of good without ever knowing it. Mm. And um, to just pluralize it, may we do a great deal of good without ever knowing it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Sandy. You've been listening to a conversation between Sandy Boucher and Zen teacher Roshi Joan Halifax here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org and let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.